Good evening. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB, the nation's most listened to news talk station. I am your host, Eric Erickson. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. You're going to have to bear with me. This actually is part of the news today. Um, but before I get into the the specifics of the news, I want to uh, break it down for you in a way you might not have heard as, as we discuss the news. Uh, I want to mention some names to you. Some of them will sound familiar. Some of them won't. Uh, Jay Carney, Linda Douglas, Laura Rosen, Ruth Marcus, John Harwood, Neil King, Nate Silver, John Harris, Ezra Klein, Andrew Rosenthal, Shyla Murray, Stephen Barr, Jill Zuckman, Jonathan Allen, Andy Barr, George Stephanopoulos, David Gregory, Erica Greider, Michael Shear, Spencer Ackerman, Douglas Franz, Elspeth Reeves. You, you may not recognize all these names. You may recognize some of them, but I want to break this down for you. Uh, Jay Carney uh, was a political reporter for Time magazine before he went to work for Vice President Joe Biden and then became the White House press secretary. Uh, he was replaced as the vice president secretary by Shyla Murray, who worked for the Washington Post. Shyla Murray is married to Neil King, who worked for the Wall Street Journal as a Washington reporter before leaving to work for Fusion GPS, the left-wing opposition research firm Hit Group. Linda Douglas was a reporter for ABC News before being hired by the White House, where she was the woman who encouraged you to turn in your neighbor if they were lying about Obamacare before she went on to The Atlantic. Jill Zuckman was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune and then went to work for the Transportation Department. Uh, then there's all the people at the Washington Post. There's Shyla Murray, who went to work for the vice president. There's Douglas Franz, who went to work for the State Department. There's Stephen Barr, who went to work for the Labor Department. All these Washington Post people. I mean, let, let's not pretend that there isn't some incestuousness between the Democratic Party and members of the media. Uh, you got Ruth Marcus, for example, was is the editorial page editor of the Washington Post. She's the one who thinks it's okay to, to kill uh, kids with Down syndrome while they're still in utero. She's married to the former chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, put there by Barack Obama. The, David Gregory married to Beth Wilkinson, uh, who was the executive vice president, general counsel, and corporate secretary to Fannie Mae for a while. Or there's the people who were at or still are at the Politico. Like uh, John Harris, who was the editor, married to the former head of NARAL in Virginia. Or Jonathan Allen, uh, who was the senior Washington correspondent for the Politico before leaving to work for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Then he returned to the, the Politico to be a national correspondent. Then he left there to go to the left-wing Vox website. And he's left there to go to NBC News. Or Andy Barr, who was a Politico reporter, who he left there to go to the DNC and then went to work for Democratic campaigns. Or you've got a guy like Spencer Ackerman who worked for the New Republic and then for Wired and now The Guardian. Elspeth Reeves who was also at the New Republic before going to The Atlantic. 
uh, also herself left wing. Michael Shearer, who worked for Salon and then Mother Jones and then Time magazine. Laura Rosen, who worked for Mother Jones, the even more left wing American prospect before going to foreign policy. She's someone the Obama administration identified as being willing to help them push their Iran nonsense. Or Ezra Klein, who worked for a left wing site called Pentagon before going to the American prospect, then the Washington Post, uh, and then going off to run Vox. Now, why do I bring up all of those people and all of those ties within the media, all the incestuousness, all the marriages into democratic politics and the media, all of that? Why do I bring it all up? Now, I bring up all of these ties. Uh, Jay Carney going uh, from time as an objective reporter to the White House. Michael Shearer being a supposed, uh, being a, a writer for left-wing publications and then suddenly mainstreaming it. Uh, Shyla Murray, who worked with or was married to Neil King, who was a, a and you know actually when I first did this, Neil King sent me a note. He vehemently disagreed with me, uh, weaving all the ties together, including his marriage to Shyla Murray. He thought it was completely inappropriate, and then he left the Wall Street Journal to join Fusion GPS, where he is openly partisan these days. He was there at, at the Wall Street Journal as well, uh, but not nearly as open about it. Uh, you got Andrew Rosenthal, who was the editor of the editorial page at the New York Times for the longest time. He's the guy you'll remember made up the story about George H.W. Bush at a uh, grocery store checkout counter at one of those self uh, checkout things. He made up a story about George Bush being shocked by the self checkout uh, situation, and it was completely made up. All of the eyewitnesses who were there disputed it, but he wrote it and then was able to get it circulated um, into newspapers across the country. Most of them ran retractions, but his newspaper never bothered to run a retraction about it. You've got all of these situations of all of these um, liberals in the media going to work with Democrats and then going back into the media in some cases. You got all of these liberal mainstream reporters who used to come from left-wing publications. And I bring all of this up to tell you that this should shape your understanding of the orgy of media slander against Sean Hannity. It is amazing to see a bunch of people who are married into the Democratic Party or revolved around left-wing circles, supposedly being objective reporters, making a huge deal out of Sean Hannity having a relationship with Michael Cohen. Now, I am on record as saying that if Sean Hannity and Michael Cohen had a uh, attorney-client privilege relationship, Hannity should have mentioned it on air. And in fact, it appears that uh, he did not want his name coming out Um, Out of embarrassment, Hannity probably should have gone ahead and done this ahead of time, uh, just given the amount of coverage he's had of leaks that have come out of all these investigations, anti-Trump leaks, leaks designed to smear people. He probably should have gotten ahead of this and told everyone, but he didn't. So, okay. Hannity didn't. What do we know? Well, according to him, he has a, uh, an attorney-client privilege relationship with Michael Cohen. It's not a formal relationship. He has asked Michael Cohen for help in a real estate deal in the past and also for various legal advice uh, that he took to be privileged, but he never used Michael Cohen to to do any major dealings with anyone else. That's that's all we know on record. And the media is, is blowing this up. The media is blasting Fox News. Hannity, by the way, is, is not an objective reporter at Fox. No one has ever claimed him to be. Neither 
neither has he claimed himself to be. And the media is out to get the man today. Why? Because he's a conservative at Fox who is successful and has really good ratings. If he were someone no one had ever heard of, none of them would really care. And all the people who are coming after him have Democrats in their closet, if not in their bed. And yet they would prefer us to pay no attention to their own conflicts of interest. They would much prefer to impugn the integrity and character of Sean Hannity over this particular situation. Pay no attention to their Democratic skeletons or bodies or what have you in their closets, bedrooms, and everywhere else. It is really hypocritical. Let me stop for just a minute and promote one of our sponsors. Thanks to Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring this week's show. And, you know, I was actually one of the original members of Dollar Shave Club. Back in the day, I was a lawyer when they came out. They had that awesome ad, and I totally bought into it because I was tired of paying for my razors um, at the grocery store price. It is a great company, and the razors are very, very solid. You go to dollarshaveclub.com, and you can see they got more than just razors, and it's so much better than shopping in a grocery store and you know so i got they sent me a packet before this promo began as if i needed them because i got some um but they got a great razor and they've got great shave cream they've got a body cleanser they even have the one wipe charlie's i'll let you decide whether or not you like them or not but you know it's a great it's a great product uh really really do like it uh their dr carver shave butter is fantastic and given that i am prone to rashes and whatnot i only shave every other day because of it i'm sure Sure you wanted to know that, um, but it actually works and I don't break out. Uh, so I highly do recommend Dollar Shave Club. I have been a Dollar Shave Club member for, well, gosh, I was a lawyer. It's been a long time since... I've used, how long have they been around? I don't know. Anyway, they've been around forever. Um, solid, solid company. Great people. Great idea, too. They were the first. You got all these other competitors out there, and they were the first to come out and say, you know what? We can beat the other guys. So a great innovator. You can clean up your bathroom and your morning routine. Join Dollar Shave Club today for just $5. With free shipping, you'll get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, one-wipe Charlie's. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Way cheaper than what you'll get at the grocery store, by the way. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Eric. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. Look, y'all, I don't want to downplay the issue of what happened in court. Um, there is a discrepancy. We should not be dismissive of it uh, regarding what Michael Cohen's lawyers have said and what uh, Sean has said in the last 24 hours. But it doesn't appear at all to be related to the president. And I see what the left is doing here and what members of the left embedded within the media are doing. See, what, what Cohen's lawyer did, and you need, do need to understand this to understand where the left's implications are. Essentially, uh, in, in Michael Cohen's legal filings about the, the evidence taken from his um, hotel room and office, he said he had 10 clients. Seven of them were, he gave them business advice, and there were three others. And of those three, one was about a uh, payment made to Stormy Daniels, the adult film star, uh, on behalf of President Trump. The second is Elliot uh, Broidy, who was the finance chair for the RNC. And that dealing was about a $1.6 million payment to a Playboy Playmate um, to abort their child. And then the third was undisclosed, who didn't want to be disclosed because he didn't want to be embarrassed. Uh, and the lawyer said that it had nothing to do, that particular case had nothing to do with attorney-client matters. 
And so the judge, Kimball Wood, said, well, then if it if you don't have attorney-client privileged information involved here, then you've got to disclose who it is. And so he did, and it was Sean Hannity. But he'd already, so the left is saying, oh, well, you've got these three segregated over here. So clearly Hannity must be like those other two, as opposed to these seven over here were business related. But actually, if you paid attention to what the lawyer was saying, he was saying that this one guy, there wasn't attorney-client privilege matters with him. He's just, he's a client, but they didn't have any pressing attorney-client privilege matters. Well, that would then exclude him from being like the other two. But the left is just interested in smearing Hannity. And I got to tell you, a lot of the reporters who are doing the smearing have a great deal of personal baggage. I mean, I, I know stories on some of these people. I, I'm not going to gossip about them. I know the stories. If it ever came out, their careers would be ruined or they would be packed off to rehab against their will or get a divorce. But nonetheless, uh, they're all going after Hannity because there is a lot of jealousy in the media uh, and they believe that they can undermine Fox News. And a lot of this has more to do with Fox News even than Sean Hannity. They are out to get Fox. And listen, I, there's no love loss with Fox. I, I told them I didn't even want to come back, and then they didn't want me to come back anyway. But it's still ridiculous. I, I know BS when I see it or smell it. Uh, and that's this entire story. Uh, Sean should have known better and should have made himself a part of the story by disclosing this preemptively and spinning it the way he wanted instead of it coming out in open court. Um, but it doesn't matter. There just doesn't appear to be a there there. And the media is just using Hannity to go after Fox. Moving right along 39 after the hour, we really got to move along to the IRS failures today. Uh, government action or rather inaction. You're filing your taxes today. You probably haven't been able to make a payment um, online because the payment processor the IRS uses crashed. You would think at this point in the 21st century, they would figure out how to do it. You know, let me give you a sign. I, I am totally in the cult of Apple. Those of you who are regular listeners know this. Um, I like that they keep my privacy safe. I like that all my devices tend to work together fairly well, uh, fairly comprehensively within this ecosystem. I know Clark Howard doesn't like them, um, but that's okay. Uh, we can disagree on this. I think Apple is a far superior product, um, and particularly when it comes to privacy these days. Nonetheless, uh, for years, Apple had their, their keynotes with Steve Jobs where they would unveil stuff, and they would try to live stream the events. And in live streaming the events, it inevitably just, I mean, went on the fritz. It was terrible. Uh, it was never well done. It always broke down. And Apple threw up their hands and said, you know what? No more of this. Sorry, done. We're not going to live stream these events anymore. And it's not that they gave up doing it. It's that they doubled down on trying to figure out what they needed to do to live stream so that if a million people wanted to watch the live stream, a hundred million people wanted to watch it, the system would not crash, and they ultimately were able to figure that out. And interestingly enough, they went to Major League Baseball, and they let Major League Baseball handle it because Major League Baseball was live-streaming baseball um, games and massive streams of people watching them, and they worked up a, a cooperative deal, and others have done this with baseball. For example, HBO, when they launched HBO Go, it crashed a lot. Uh, people trying to watch stuff on HBO Go or HBO Now, which is their live streaming, where you can watch, for example, Game of Thrones the night that it appears as opposed to waiting the next day. 
And they went with Major League Baseball as well. And so baseball spun out this entire company from that. The federal government should do stuff like this, but the federal government doesn't. They hire government contractors who have been longtime government contractors and stuff like this happens. There's something to be said for the procurement issues with the Department of Defense related to this. I've got friends who are procurement experts related to defense initiatives. Now, that's a fancy way of saying is that they know how to navigate the procurement process in the Department of Defense bureaucracy to get things purchased or to develop new weapon systems. Uh, they're very, very good at it, and they lament all of the time that the Department of Defense is no longer an organization designed to defend the United States. It is an organization designed to prop up uh, failing corporations who make weapon systems for the United States and could not survive but for the bloat and overinflated prices. And that as a result, what we are seeing is a United States government that it fails to innovate, cannot innovate, cannot make newer, better, cheaper things, because if they did, these massive monopolies of government purchasing power would collapse. I mean, that is a more macro view of what's happening with the with the the tax processor today. But come on, they should have known better and they didn't. And it crashed. And of course, it's really, really funny to see the left today trying to make this a, a Donald Trump thing. Uh, when Donald Trump's IRS was not the one picking the processor. Yes, that that would be Barack Obama. Now we got to move on, by the way. The USA Today today is running an op-ed by the president. Uh, the headline is America's economy is back and roaring and its people are winning. Um, the subtitle, paychecks are climbing, tax rates are going down, businesses are investing in our great country, most important, Americans are winning. It's all about uh, the tax reform bill, how much it's helping Americans on this tax day. I, I got to tell you guys, I, I think that they're honestly, this is a sign of a level of incompetence within the White House communications team that they did not run this story. They did not um, make this their big thing today. They did not push it out on the president's Twitter feed consistently through the day. They were not on um, regular routine talking points. The entire cabinet, the entire administration should be out there today talking about this op-ed and tax reform. The entire Republican Party in Washington should be out there doing this today, and they're not. And since Hope Hicks left, I realized that there is a, a fight, a turf war brewing over the communications department uh, in the White House. But they really should have done a better job. I mean, it's, it's not a common thing for the president of the United States to have an op-ed in USA Today. And that it is so good and on message for tax reform, it's just regrettable how the White House dropped the ball on coordinating this message through the day. And just another sign of the dysfunction within the White House. Um, now, I know that makes some of you mad to say, but I, I think you got to be able to accurately diagnose the problem. And that, I'm telling you, is the problem. Okay, when we come back, I, I do want to get into what's happening with Starbucks and uh, that situation and, and some of the reaction to it. I actually, uh, I, I, I may disagree with some of you on this, but I, we'll save it for later. I, I forgot earlier, defending Hannity. There's also a story, I think it's rather silly, from Rosie Gray at The Atlantic. Uh, which, remember, hired Linda Douglas, who worked at the White House after leaving ABC News. Um, Sean Hannity ties to two more Trump-connected lawyers. 
Hannity has no shortage of lawyers. In court on Monday, his name was disclosed as the third client from Michael Cohen, but blah, blah, blah. And in 2017, Victoria Tonzin and Jay Seculo sent a cease and desist letter to a radio station in Oklahoma. Um, y'all, uh, Jay Seculo and Victoria Tonzin are longtime friends of Sean Hannity. I mean, like a decade or longer. If you're a conservative leader in Washington or New York at all, if you have any sort of prominence, you run in Victoria and Jay circles. They're friends. Uh, it, it is truly staggering that this is a story. This is such a nonsensical BS story. Uh, this, again, is the epitome of the pile-on uh, against Hannity. Oh, and they're using uh, Debbie Schlussel in this story, who's just a, a nut. She's the one who said Hannity had sexually, uh, had improperly or was creepy towards her and invited her to his hotel room, which anyone who knows this woman um, knows they should take Hannity's side. Even liberals defended Hannity on this. Just such a silly little gotcha game being played, and it's all to get Fox News. It really is. It has nothing to do with Hannity. He's just stuck in the middle here as they try to use him as a proxy for Fox. All right. Now, that being said, we got to move on. Uh, Starbucks, they're shutting down at the end of May to give all of their employees diversity training. I have some thoughts. Some of you will not like them when we come back. Welcome back. It is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is the second hour of Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. And I kind of sort of lied. Well, I, I, I didn't really intend to lie, but I need to get into the Neil Gorsuch news before I get into the Starbucks news. It's much more important and pressing today. And that is that Neil Gorsuch, uh, Donald Trump's uh, successful nominee to the United States Supreme Court, uh, sided with all the liberals on the Supreme Court today on a five to four decision uh, ending a, a government law, a, declaring unconstitutional a law that did mandatory deportation of criminals, uh, potentially violent criminals. Now, I read the dissent, or I'm sorry, the concurrence from Neil Gorsuch in this, and it really was a interesting, very conservative concurrence. And I'm I'm having a hard time seeing why some conservatives are outraged by Gorsuch today. And I, I think it is outcome-based outraged. They want judges to be able to easily deport criminal elements from this country who are here illegally. And so they're angry with Gorsuch. But if they actually read Gorsuch's concurrence, I actually think they would do like I did, it just not any longer. I mean, I had to look at it and say, why on earth would he side with uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer on this? That makes no sense. And as I'm reading his concurrence, I'm nodding along saying, okay, this actually makes a lot of sense. And so I, I don't ask that you agree with me or with Gorsuch. But I do ask that you try to understand his position because his position is not the position of the left. His position is not that um, you should not be allowed to automatically deport people. The position of uh, Elena Kagan, who drafted the majority opinion, essentially is that uh, no one should be automatically deported from this country if they're a violent criminal. Gorsuch is very clear in his concurrence, he would be five to four with the conservatives on that issue 
if he thought the law were written soundly. And he is very much a textualist like Scalia was. In fact, he spends a lot of time quoting Scalia and lining up ideologically with Scalia and not uh, Thomas in this. And I dare say, and I've had a number of legal scholars today note that you probably would have seen Antonin Scalia if he were on the Supreme Court siding with the left on this case, uh, because this is one of his hobby horses. And that is, in a nutshell, that... Congress cannot and should not write laws that are so vague as to allow a judge to use his personal whim to penalize someone. And that's what Congress did in this case. They made it an an issue of near-automatic deportation for criminals who could potentially be violent based on a very nebulous standard. And that nebulous standard uh, has been applied in California, for example, where this case originated, uh, to door-to-door salesmen who solicited in neighborhoods with a no solicitation sign to violent criminals. It allowed that wide of a range of, of criminal penalty based on the perception of violent harm, potential for violent harm. And Gorsuch said that's nonsense. You've got to prescribe a standard in legislation that any judge anywhere in the country could apply consistently, not based on their whims, but based on the whims of the elected officials. And he said it ran afoul of that. Now, a couple more points here. Okay, a few more points here. Um, Clarence Thomas Believes so. There's a standard judges have used for a long time. Um, void for vagueness is basically how they refer to it. In that, Congress can write a statute and have it so vague as to be meaningless. And Clarence Thomas has has hit on this a, a number of times, including in this case, that if void for vagueness isn't a constitutional standard. It's nowhere in the Constitution. And one of the things that Gorsuch does, and he's relying on Scalia's writing and, and others' writings, historic writings, is that void for vagueness is a standard that predates the Constitution. And clearly the founders would have known of it and contemplated it and documents all the historic writings uh, that flowed through to build the idea. And I think Gorsuch is right on this. Uh, And the basic idea, and this is something that Gorsuch has spent years writing about. He was grilled by the Democrats on this because they were fearful it would work against them who, who saw the immigration case coming. And that is, it's a very simple idea that Congress oftentimes writes laws that are vague because congressmen can't agree. And they then allow bureaucrats or judges to use their interpretations of the law to set regulations or judicial precedent. And what that does is it allows the whim of the judge or the bureaucrat to take precedence over the Congress or the state legislature. And Gorsuch has for a long time said this is bad. It is better to not make a law than to write a law so vague that it empowers a bureaucrat to exercise his judgment on a legislative matter uh, over and above the lawfully elected legislators. 
and that Congress too often gets in a habit of doing this so that Congress can avoid the sticky political fights and let the bureaucrats who are unelected settle it without worrying about the repercussions from voters. Essentially, Congress abdicating its responsibility to judges and to bureaucrats. And I agree with him. And I submit to you that those of you who are upset about this, 90% of you would agree with him if it didn't involve a deportation case, mandatory deportation. And I think the, the principle is bigger than the, this initial policy because it is this initial policy, that this mandatory deportation, that Congress did do it so nebulously to allow bureaucrats and judges to exercise their discretion where they can't be punished by you because they're unelected. And that's Gorsuch's ultimate point, is that Congress keeps doing these things to avoid political ramifications. And in the process, they are propping up and growing the uh, bureaucracy and the power of judges uh, at a complete abdication of their Article I uh, powers. And I, I'm, I'm telling you guys, I think Gorsuch's reasoning is sound. And I have a number of friends who are deeply angry with him today and are angry with the president for appointing him. Uh, and I just, I don't doubt his logic. I, I really don't on this. Uh, and I have been on this hobby horse myself for a very long time uh, that Congress abdicates its powers and responsibilities to bureaucrats who are unelected so Congress can blame them when things go wrong because Congress really doesn't want to have to deal with the ramifications of it. And Gorsuch essentially is using his opinion to call them out and say, you know what, you guys, all of you Democrat and Republican think there are some people who automatically should be deported because they're violent. So go back and write this law. It'll be, I'll uphold it, but you got to write it so a judge in California can't use a completely different standard from a judge in Florida uh, coming to completely opposite conclusions for the same fact pattern. And he's right. Let me stop for just a minute and promote one of our sponsors. Thanks to Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring this week's show. And, you know, I was actually one of the original members of Dollar Shave Club. Back in the day, I was a lawyer when they came out. They had that awesome ad, and I totally bought into it because I was tired of paying for my razors um, at the grocery store price. It is a great company, and the razors are very, very solid. You go to dollarshaveclub.com, and you can see they got more than just razors, and it's so much better than shopping in a grocery store. And, you know, so I got, they sent me a packet before this promo began as if I needed them because I got some, um, but they got a great razor and they've got great shave cream. They've got a body cleanser. They even have the one wipe Charlie's. I'll let you decide whether or not you like them or not, but you know, it's a great, it's a great product. Uh, really, really do like it. Uh, their Dr. Carver shave butter is fantastic. And given that I am prone to rashes and whatnot, I only shave every other day because of it. I'm sure you wanted to know that. Um, but it actually works and I don't break out. Uh, so I highly do recommend Dollar Shave Club. I have been a Dollar Shave Club member for, well, gosh, I was a lawyer. It's been a long time since I've you. How long have they been? Around? I don't know. Anyway, they've been around forever. Um, solid, solid company. Great people. Great idea, too. They were the first. You got all these other competitors out there and they were the first to come out and say, you know what? We can beat the other guys. So a great innovator. You can clean up your bathroom and your morning routine. Join Dollar Shave Club today for just $5. With free shipping, you'll get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, one-wipe Charlie's. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Way cheaper than what you'll get at the grocery store, by the way. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Eric. Okay, I... 
I just real quick here um, want to mention the Southwest Airlines flight. Um, one passenger dead. My understanding, the woman um, partially sucked out of the uh, jet when the window broke uh, is the one who died, I believe. Um, and it, it, I, I normally wouldn't dwell on this subject except for this. A lot of people on the plane had cell phones with video cameras and began to record some texting, trying to call family members, uh, texting them using the the in-plane Wi-Fi and whatnot to, to do so. Others videotaping or <laughs> videoing what was going around videotaping. How 20th century. Um, it is staggering to me. We so often focus on the daily news. And we so often these days focus on people behaving badly. How in crisis you find real heroes, everyday heroes, everyday people who are willing to do extraordinary things. You had passengers rescuing this woman in danger of being pulled out of a plane window at depressurization. You had people working to cover the hole um, to, to block further damage. You had passengers comforting passengers. Uh, some of the, the stewardesses apparently, um, were overcome with emotion and, uh, breaking down even as they were helping people. We are a, an amazing people. And, and I say that, uh, and I, I do mean the United States. We, we have everyday heroes, uh, hiding in our midst. Uh, they don't wear capes. Uh, they wear suits and shorts and ties and no ties and polo shirts and t-shirts and, um, and I mean, there are others in other countries as well, but here just now seeing, uh, just people helping one another, um, it's, it's encouraging still in a day where it's so easy to, to not know someone and vilify them because you don't know them. I just, I, I'm, I wanted to spend a moment and point that out. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think it is good to, praise everyday people whose names you will never know, but who rose to an occasion at an extraordinary time and did something to save lives, uh, provide comfort around them. I think that's good. Now, when we come back, I do want to talk for a moment about the Starbucks situation. They're closing their stores at the end of May for diversity training after an incident in Philadelphia that I guess it happened last week while I was gone uh, and I didn't notice the headlines. Maybe it happened over the weekend. I don't know, but we do need to talk about it when we come back. Welcome back. 39 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. Um, Starbucks is going to close all of its uh, company-owned stores or restaurants, however you want to call them, coffee shops. The afternoon of May 29th to conduct a racial bias education program. And I see a lot of conservatives rolling their eyes. I am not a fan of diversity training programs because I think they skew overwhelmingly to the left. Um, my suggestion, though, is that instead of boycotting them, um, that conservatives should engage with them. Uh, and should engage uh, as appropriately and constructively as possible because the fact of the matter is there is still racism in America. And the facts of the case in Philadelphia leading to the protests of Starbucks and all of this, I think, uh, demonstrate that. In Philadelphia, not, not a bastion of the Confederacy, mind you. Uh, two black men in a Starbucks uh, going to use the restroom. Police were called. They were waiting for a friend. 
That was it. Um, a, a terrible case. Uh, I am reminded of, of uh, last week, the Gospel Coalition and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, did a conference in Memphis, MLK 50, um, on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King on racial justice. And it's been fascinating to me to watch a number of conservatives lash out at these two groups that are both very conservative, saying they were descending into left-wing talking points and, and becoming liberal for engaging in racial justice. And, you know, here's here's my thinking, and, and I have largely evolved on this issue, I guess I should say. I used to be in the camp of it's ridiculous to engage on this issue. And in the last number of years, um, as I have seen things happen with my own eyes uh, to friends of mine who are black or Hispanic, uh, even going back to when I was a lawyer and represented several uh, Hispanic immigrants and what they faced in this country, there are still bad people out there. And I think that the American church turns a blind eye to it at its peril, and we risk the left co-opting real justice in the name of the state uh, when we should be talking about it from a faith perspective instead of the role of government, the role of Jesus, if you will. Um and I, I think conservatives, when we hear stories about um, what happened at the Starbucks in Philadelphia, should not be readily dismissive of it, but we should recognize that uh, there are things that happen to people who do not look like us in this country, uh, and it happens sometimes because they do not look like us, and that's a real problem. And it should be a real problem for conservatives because... When conservatives don't engage on this issue, the only people out there in the marketplace of ideas dealing with the issue are liberals who believe it requires more government. And what liberals are actually calling for is more government of the very same type of people that would be human beings who are the ones causing the problems to begin with. I mean, folks, I, the reason I'm a conservative, honestly, it's because I am a Christian and I believe we're all sinners. I want as few sinners in charge of me as possible. The left solution is to put even more sinners in charge of us, the very same sinners of the type and caliber of people who had two black men arrested for wanting to use a bathroom in a Starbucks. The conservatives should be engaging on this issue. We should not be running from it. Uh, we should be showing up at these diversity uh, presentations, and we should be pointing out that there is an inward condition in mankind that causes us to have problems, that causes us to be unable to relate, and the solution is not more government and more regulation. It is for us to see each other as individual human beings, all created in the image of God, and not just a black group or a white group or a gay group or a straight group or what have you. Um, but too many conservatives, I think, decide we're just not going to engage in this because it's liberal indoctrination. Well, go to the liberal indoctrination class and indoctrinate them in conservatism, I say. As an aside on the Starbucks issue, again, this was a situation that happened in Philadelphia. And now I'll make the other side mad by pointing this out. Starbucks is an extremely liberal, progressive company. Uh, it, it wants to be seen as being part of the gay rights movement, uh, the transgender movement, the anti-gun movement, the pro-abortion movement. Uh, you pick the left-wing cause and the Starbucks CEO has probably engaged on its behalf. And I have no idea who the barista was at the Starbucks. By the way, am I the only one who refuses to go in and order the grande I want the medium coffee. I don't want the grande. I'm an American. I'm in America. I want the medium coffee. Um, and 
I hate Starbucks, by the way. I should also say that there are so many good coffee houses in this country. Uh, and, and I know Charlie's laughing at this because in Washington last week when we were up there, I had to go across the street to Starbucks regularly to get coffee. Uh, but it was the only coffee shop anywhere near there. I would much prefer to go to an actual small hipster coffee house where they roast the beans in-house because uh, Starbucks over-roasts their beans. It's disgusting stuff. Uh, and I only drink it out of necessity because I'm a caffeine addict. Nonetheless, I digress. Um, I, I, I would be, I would venture to say that the barista who did this is a well-meaning liberal who probably would love to march on Washington against Donald Trump and still did this. Um, I just, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. It really is. I, I feel very bad for the individuals who had this happen to them. They have a lawsuit waiting to happen. They can probably just tell Starbucks the number and have Starbucks write the check. But it is just funny to me to see such an openly progressive, uh, contemptuous of, of Christians and conservatives company uh, have this happen to them of all things. Um, it really, there, there is a, a deep bit of irony in this happening to them. Completely random topic as we round out the show today. Uh, have any of you ever wanted to know how to make red beans and rice? A uh, great Cajun dish. Uh, it's in my book. Uh, the recipe is in my book, but for my new show, um, I'm actually going to have a cooking segment. Believe it or not, I am. Uh, so one of the conversations we did is about um, actually having family meal time. And it was actually a, a conversation we had with several, but I'm actually going to do a cooking segment for the TV show uh, on a very simple red beans and rice dish. Um, now, it would be vegetarian, except I use bacon drippings. Um, but nonetheless, um, you'll be able to see me on video. We've actually done it on Mark Aram's show one night on Radio Cook Red Beans and Rice. Uh, we'll do it um, on uh, video so you can watch it. So if you want to get a, a subscription to my new TV show that is coming soon, uh, text the word FAMILY to 345-345. And stay tuned to this here program. Today I signed the contract for a hotel in Austin, Texas. We're going to do a resurgent conference. We are inviting um, politicians from across America, the Speaker of the House, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, Governor Greg Abbott, Governor Matt Bevan, Governor Pete Ricketts, Governor Rick Scott, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, uh, Mark Meadows, uh, Mark Walker, uh, Rand Paul, Ben Sass, uh, Facebook and Google representatives are going to be there to talk about online privacy. going to be a great conference. I will have details for you in the next few days. Uh, I am very excited about this conference. Uh, and the basic premise of it is, what are the ideas conservatives should fight for regardless of who the leader of the Republican Party is? And that is a conversation we need to have, and I'm happy to lead it. So, you guys have a great night. I am off to a late night Little League game. Have a good night.